The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. Letter that is First John. Uh, we're going to continue this morning in chapter 3 as we've been going through. And let me just briefly tell you, next week we're going to take a break from First John. And I want to share with you some things that, uh, that we saw happen last year through our body and some direction of things that uh, we see coming in the next year, as well as some things that we uh, need to be encouraged and exhorted uh, to in the coming year. So I want to encourage you to be here next Sunday uh, to hear that, to be a part of that. Um, I don't know about you, but I have had, uh, generally speaking in my life, two types of bosses. Um, On the one hand, I've I've worked for a gentleman once that was probably the most autocratic, fear-based motivator than there could ever be in the world. Has anybody ever worked for an individual like that? Uh, That you felt if you didn't measure up, you're just always waiting for the hammer to come down. On the other hand, I have worked for individuals that uh, that seem to be more grace-based and love-based and encouraging in that sense. And I don't know about you, but I can tell you the second type of individual that I've worked for that, that operated in that grace and love as a motivator caused me more than anything uh, to want to just serve and go beyond what was just required of me in my job. Or can I present to your proposing this morning that I think some of us may have the idea that, that God is one or two of those, that he is either a motivator based on a fear, and I'm not talking a reverence fear, but, but, a, but a fear that, that we want to please him out of fear, being afraid that if we mess up just in the slightest, that he's waiting to come down on us with a hammer, or we can see what I believe John is going to talk about here this morning in 1 John, and what I see all through Scripture, that, that God is a gracious and a loving God, and God's motivating factor in our lives as believers to be followers of Christ, behind that is his love for us. And I think it makes all the difference in the world how we live out our Christian life as we've come into relationship to him. John writes here, he kind of takes a break here in chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. And can I tell you this morning, I don't know about, I don't know if this is going to do any good for you, but I'm full this morning because I've revisited God's incredible love for me and for you as well. So you may not get anything out of this this morning. That's okay. I've gotten a lot out of it already from his word. John writes this. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given us. That we should be called children of God. And and we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit, Lord, would would pierce our hearts with your word this morning, God, and that not only, God, would it it be truth that we see and read, but God, by the Holy Spirit, you'd, you'd work it into our hearts, and God, we'd be more secure and grounded in your love, and God, in response to that, Lord, that that our motivation, our living out the Christian 
Christian life, Lord, would, would be in response to your incredible love for us. I ask it in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. John again begins writing. He says, see or take notice. Some of your translations, behold. Uh, that, that, that's, that's a word used to cause us to kind of stop. And it's as if John is, is reflecting on what he's just written about, encouraging us to abide in him, to abide in Christ and bear good fruit as, as a result of abiding in him. And, and, and it seems as though John is saying, listen, the, the reason and, and the way that that, that'll be reflected in our lives that if we abide in him, that it's rooted in his incredible love for us. And he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. I would propose this morning that the changes that God desires to make in your life and in my life come when we begin to grasp and rest in the depths of God's incredible love towards us. If we're grounded in a fear base, we might have the right performance, but, but it will fall very short because can I tell you that none of us can ever live up to the standards of God's righteousness and his desires if we're trying to do it out of a motivation of fear and trying to please him. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that God does not want us to please him in our life. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what I'm saying, if we're doing it in self and trying to live up to that, we will fall miserably short. The work that God desires to do in us comes out of his incredible love. John's going to later write in chapter 4 of this same book. He says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation or a wrath satisfier for our sins. You see, none of us are here this morning in relationship to God because we took an initiative to love him. It was his love that he poured out and demonstrated to us and drew us by his love and his grace that we've been born again and in that we respond. We recognize that he is the initiator in that relationship that we have with him. I think of in Ephesians 4 where John, uh, where Paul is writing and he's writing to husbands and, and he says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church who gave himself for her. You see, there's that initiation in that, and he uses that as a relationship to his relation to us as believers, as the bride of Christ, and it's his love that he initiated, and we as the bride respond to that in him, just as the wife in the human relationship responds to the love that the husband is giving. Ladies, it is not hard to love a man who's laying his life down for you, is it? It's a motivation to love and to respond to his love. Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. It's one of those prayers that I covered a few years ago in the series of Paul's prayers for the churches. But, but he writes this, and, and if you want to pray for me in anything, pray this prayer for me. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that... Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love. 
You see, the, the living out in the Christian life comes first primarily in the fact that we know that we are grounded and rooted in his insurpassable love for us. He goes on to describe this kind of love and, and he's praying to the Father for these Ephesian believers that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints to be able to understand how, what the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and that to you know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. What he's saying is that you might grow in the infinite love of God. He uses that height, depth, breadth, and width to say that God's love really is immeasurable towards us. Some of you this morning don't believe that God's love for you is immeasurable. What I'm sharing with you is not based on JMO's authority. What I'm sharing with you is what is based on what God says, that his love towards you is immeasurable. Can somebody say, thank you, Lord, for that? John's earlier gone on to this letter to, to tell us that there are, really th there are three things primarily that, that battle against us as believers in living out the Christian life. And I would say this morning that these same things that, that come against us in living out the Christian life are the same very things that come against us in not being rooted and grounding and walking in the love of God. And that is number one, Satan himself. The Bible says that he is the accuser of the brethren. You, you might think that you've met the worst gossip in the world that's just going around and accusing you of everything. But can I tell you that that person is nowhere, nowhere close to what the enemy is able to do to accuse the brethren. You see, he's always, why? Because if he can cause you and me to question the love of God for us, it takes us out of that basking and walking in his grace and responding. The second area that comes against us in understanding the love that God has for us is the world system that John talks about in here. Because the world is always trying to offer us something that will fill that love void in our life that only God can fill. You know why advertisers advertise, right? You know why marketers market, right? So they can sell that. And when they're selling that product, what they're selling is not necessarily something that we need, but they're selling something that we think we need that'll cause us to make us feel that we are more lovable. Amen? We're bombarded with it every day. You know, there's the old song, I think it was in the 60s. I'm not old enough to remember it. But Maurice, you are. You're my oldest brother. <laughs> Looking for love in all the... Always. Looking for love in too many places. And you see, the world system wants to feed us that, but, but it's nothing near the love and the security that we have in the love of our Father. The third thing that we battle against, I do anyway, is self or my flesh. I can be my worst critic. Anybody else with me on that? 
I think I shared a couple of weeks ago that I can get in the mode so many times that nobody likes me, everybody hates me. Guess I will go and eat some worms, right? But what I find oftentimes in, in that criticism of self that, that comes from my flesh is that, that I have this ideal of a way that I can measure up to God's acceptance and His love. And when I fall short of that, I begin to condemn myself and the enemy doesn't need to be there to condemn me. And really what I'm doing is sinning against God in that because I'm not taking it his, him at his word that he loves me unconditionally. The other times he is not pleased with me or you, right? But his love never wanes in that. Some of you may have been like me that you had family members that, that you grew up with. Maybe it was a parent that their expression to you in love was based on a way that you would perform. And when you fell short of that performance, they would give you the silent treatment because they wanted you to know that you had not met up to their expectations. Can I tell you, God's not like that. He, he woos us by his spirit. And that's a part of what we're going to talk about this love in just a minute. So we might ask the question, well, what kind of love is it then that, the God, that God the Father has for us? Well, there are three things I want to point out. It could be more than this. But number one, I want to say this, that, that God's love for us is an unconditional love. When John writes here in, in verse one, he says, see what kind of love. Well, what kind of love is that it is an unconditional love. It is not based on your and my performance, but it's unconditional. I, I, the best way that I can understand unconditional, and maybe you, you may not have had this experience with an earthly father, but, but I, my children... Man, I don't care what my children ever do. I might be displeased with them. I might not like it. But can I tell you that I think that by the love that God spread abroad in our hearts, we're able to, that regardless of what they might ever do or not do, that my love for them would be unconditional. And I believe I say that sincerely. That it's an unconditional kind of love. It's not a performance-based kind of love. You see, he loved us before we ever had a clue of who he was or who we were apart from him. The Bible says this in Romans chapter 5 verse 8. He says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't start to love you and I once we began to clean up our act, once we joined a Baptist church, Southern Baptist at that, Right? He didn't begin to love us once we carried the right kind of Bible or sang the right kind of songs or, or gave the right amount, any of that. God extended his love towards us while we were wretched sinners like a worm, according to the songwriter in Amazing Grace. Um, he, he loved us while we were yet sinners. I, I like to paraphrase it this way. He loved us when we were unlovable. I find it interesting. There are several stories in Scripture that God uses to demonstrate what this unconditional love is because it's hard for us to comprehend. But, but he gives us a couple of illustrations. Number one is one, one thing that comes to my mind. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son? 
I mean, he, he gets his share of his father's inheritance, and, and he goes away, and he squanders it out there. And, and the only reason he goes back to the father, it's not because he thinks he's going to be loved by the father. The reason he goes back to the father is because he has nowhere else to go, and he's destitute. And perhaps in his mind, he's wondering what kind of retribution is going to come on him when he goes back to the father. But as the father sees him at a far distance, he, he begins to run and he praises God and he throws a party because why? My son that was lost has now returned to me. The second illustration that comes to my mind in Scripture really blows my mind. Some of you may be familiar with the story, others may not, but it, it, it's recorded in the, the letter, the small prophet of, of Hosea, where, where God demonstrates his love to the nation of Israel by telling his prophet Hosea to go and take a woman who is a prostitute. And he says, I want you to marry her. Because I've got to show Israel that she, Israel, has been just like this woman who is a prostitute. She's been whoring around with all the other nations and their gods. Can I say that in church? But the Bible says that, so I can say it, right? He says, Hosea, go and buy, go, go, and, go, and, go and purchase her and marry her. Purchase her and marries her and, and, and they begin this relationship and they have children and and she goes out again and goes back to that lifestyle and you know what God tells Hosea go and get her and bring her back to you and love her even though she has prostituted herself out to other men you see this is the kind of love he says that that I have for you Israel and that same kind of love he has for you and I would you call that unconditional love second kind of love when he says kind is is a sacrificial kind of love when I was in South Florida once I was able to hear Warren Sapp who is a former um, a defensive end for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He's now a pastor. Warren Sapp was talking about his, his love and admiration for the coach that many of us know and have revered, Tony Dungy. And he was talking about how great of a man he is. And then Warren Sapp makes this statement, and, and it kind of, it'll take you back for a minute. But he was relating it to this kind of unconditional, the sacrificial love that God has for us. And he said this about Tony Dungy. He said, I would take a bullet for him if it wouldn't kill me. <laughs> you see, God would take a bullet for you and me, and it did kill him. It's unconditional. It's a, it's a sacrificial kind of love. We all know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? A sacrificial kind of love. Now, we have to understand this sacrificial kind of love isn't one that, that, that says, okay, God, you love me, and now I can demand anything from you and expect you to give it to me, right? We all know that's not loving our children when we did that. How many of you made that mistake with one or two of yours? <laughs> Nobody wants to admit it, right? 
but it's a sacrificial kind of love that God is willing to give of himself. Why? So that you and I can be forgiven of our sins and have a relationship with him that God so desires to have relationship with us that he is willing to pay the price and the penalty for our sins that we could never pay just so he could have relationship with us. The third kind of love, I think, is, is an unending kind of love. Meaning that it, that it never ceases. It, it'll never wear out. It'll never grow old. It won't become old hat. It won't, be, it won't become like, well, we were that way when we were honeymooners. No, he's going to still hold our hands after 40 years with him. Amen? Unending. I love what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verses 35 to 39, where, where he talks about this love that God has for us, where he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? It's written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can't separate yourself from the love of Christ. I love what Jeremiah records that God says to Israel. He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love, and I have drawn you with my loving kindness. It's it's an everlasting kind of love, but the way God draws us, can I use a JMOism here kind of phrase? He woos us to him. He he draws us to him. In the state that we were before we knew him, he wooed us to him. In the state where you are today, he is wooing you to him. Why? Because he loves you. He desires relationship, and he desires for us to be in fellowship with him. Let's go on reading. In the last part of this verse, John writes, see, we kind of love that, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. Here's kind of my twist and translation on this. What kind of crazy, peculiar kind of love could this be that we could be called the children of God? That once we were alienated from him by our sin, but, but he chose to make us his children, his beloved. The idea here is that we have been begotten of him. We've been born again. I love what Martin Luther said one time. Somebody asked him the question, do you feel this morning like you are a child of God? Martin Luther responded, I cannot say that I do, but I am. <laughs> You see, I don't always feel like a child of God, and neither do you. But my feelings have no bearing on what God's promises and his truths are and what he has done. I can't feel my way out of relationship to God. 
I can't feel my way out of his love for me because it does not depend on my feelings. It depends solely on what he has done and then that he has saved us. Can I read from you Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 5? And, and, and this is the New Living Translation. And I like the way it puts it, and it's pretty accurate in this particular portion of the translation. Paul says, once you were dead, doomed forever because of your sins, you used to live just like the rest of the world, full of sin, obeying Satan, the mighty prince of the power of the air. He is the spirit, meaning Satan. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of the mighty prince of power of the air. He is the spirit at works in the heart of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passions and desires of our evil nature. Do you know who the all of us is? All of us. So I can't get all high and mighty, can I? We were both with an evil nature, we were born with an evil nature, and we were under God's anger just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and He loved us so very much that even while we were dead because of our sins, He gave us life when He raised Christ from the dead. And it is only by God's special favor that it's His grace that you have been saved. He goes on to say, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Um, is, it, is it true for most of us when, when we became born again that all of a sudden our, our, our eyes were open and, and we wondered, why is it that we didn't understand that before? That all of a sudden things begin to change in our lives. And it's not that we're trying to do behavior modification to make those changes, but that the desires even begin to change. And we marveled in the fact that, man, how could I have lived that way or thought that way? He says here that the world does not know us. The, the idea in that word know is to understand or comprehend by experience. And you see, when we're changed by His grace and by the Holy Spirit, there's a change, there's a transformation that takes place in us, and all of a sudden the things that seem like foolishness to us all become gold nuggets, right? The message of the cross, the Bible says, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That all of a sudden, that message seemed foolishness, but when we surrendered to His wooing love and accepted His sacrifice for us, there was a change, and all of a sudden, now we recognize that, man, the message of the cross, the gospel now, is the power of God because it has the power to transform us. We shouldn't be surprised when, when the world does not understand us. Listen, before I was saved, I, 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 didn't, I didn't understand the guys on my boat that were saved, my submarine. And I was one of those. <laughs> Taking off the veil a little bit here. I, I'm ashamed of it, but I was one of those that tried to get these Christian guys who had been born again to go out and, and 
participate in the same things that I was doing. Man, when I got born again, all of a sudden, there was a transformation and there was a change. And it wasn't anything that I did. It was what the Holy Spirit of God does in us. Now I could understand. Sometimes I, I find that we can be most critical in the body of Christ of those that are in the world and forget that we too were once just like that. Folks, it ought not be that way. Amen? Anything good in your life and in my life is all because of the change that Jesus has brought about in us, not anything that we ever did. We get high and mighty in our sanctimonious saddle in the church and forget that we too were once that way and we may not have acted out that way, but Jesus said it was all right there in our heart. The world doesn't understand that. Our response to the world should not be to condemn the world. Jesus says, I didn't come to condemn the world, but, the, but through me that the world might be saved. So our response to those in the world, just as we were, should not be to condemn, but it would be to pray and love and exhibit God's grace. Doesn't mean I have to condone. When I look at the life of Jesus, you know who he hung out with? There were some sordid folks. The ones that he had the most criticism for were the religious folks who thought that it was by their own doing that they were all right. Jesus hung with them. Jesus said, listen, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all things, all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Because they do not know him who sent me. Verse 2, beloved, we're children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. Two things that, that he's making reference to, I think, in here is, is number one, at, at Jesus' return, when he appears and he is coming back, and we know no one knows the hour, not even the Son knows, but when he appears, we shall be like him in two ways. Number one, we know that we're going to have a resurrected body, a changed body just like his. But, but number two, and this is the thing that I think is that all of us are eagerly awaiting and expecting, that when he appears, we shall be as he is, meaning that the sanctification that he has seated for us will be forever changed, and I will no longer, you will no longer have to deal with this wretched body of flesh. Amen? Amen. <laughs> it will be changed the, the fullness and completion of that sanctifying work will take place at that time when he appears. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him 
as he is. Paul writes this. He says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. It's a process that he began in our lives the moment we became born again, but it will be fulfilled when he returns and we will be complete in him. Romans 8, 29, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. It's going to happen. Somebody said amen. Verse 3, and I got to wrap up. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Hmm. Hopes in him. The word hope used in scripture is not a wishful kind of hope, but, but it's a hope in him, an assurance And everyone who hopes in him has a hope in him, a hope of a resurrection, a hope of being conformed, completely sanctified to his Everyone who hopes in him, in the meantime, I might put in parentheses here, purifies himself as he is pure. And and so there's that, that exhortation that John gives here. Listen, if your hope is in him, then, then, then live, rest in his love, allow him to work and change and transform you, being obedient to him. Don't use it as an excuse for sin, but grow in sanctification. The writer of Hebrews chapter 12 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so which clings so closely, and and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against him, so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. You ever grow weary and faint-hearted, sometimes desiring to live out the Christian life? I do. This is, listen, consider him. Throw off every sin, every attitude, every motive, everything that, that, that doesn't meet the standard so that it doesn't hinder you in your race, in your walk with him. Press on towards the mark of the high calling in Jesus. And we have to remember this, that when Paul exhorted us to live out our salvation in fear and trembling, to walk out, he reminds us after that, for it is he, him, the Holy Spirit, that works in us to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Conyers, located in Conyers, Georgia. For more information about First Baptist Conyers, please visit us online at firstconyers.com.